I'll invite you right now to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, as we look at the next in our series of sins that Christians often excuse or ignore, the sin of unthankfulness. I'm not even sure that unthankfulness is actually a word. Um, I think it more properly would be described as ingratitude, but uh, I'm following the the language here of Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, uh, that uh, at least gave me this list of sins to work off of. And so we're going to call it unthankfulness, the sin of unthankfulness. Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is preparing the Israelites to enter the promised land. And he's, he's doing that by reviewing the law of God that had been given to their fathers at Mount Sinai some 40 years before that. One of the prominent themes, maybe even the key word of the book of Deuteronomy, is remember. And that is what chapter 8 is all about. Look with me at chapter 8 and begin there in verse 1. Moses says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Let's begin this morning, if you will, with a word of prayer. As we look into the word of God and we want to ask the Lord, (coughs) excuse me, the Lord, to use His Word to speak to our hearts. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask You that we might receive from You today. We want to receive instruction from Your Word. Lord, I pray that You'd help each one of us in our hearts to, right now, purpose that we will listen to the message of Your Word, that we will believe what Your Word says, that we will receive the truth. I pray that you would help us by the power of your Spirit as He takes the Word of God that's spoken and He impresses it onto our hearts. Help us to see, Lord, the area of need in our life. Help us to see where the root of unthankfulness is and help us to see it in our own lives and to learn, even today, to begin to learn how to be thankful and to demonstrate uh, proper gratitude. Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that we cannot really have true thankfulness if we are not born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And I pray that every person who's here today would would hear the truth and hear the, the Word of God and realize, Lord, if they are not a Christian born again by believing in Jesus Christ alone, 
And I pray that today they would see that there is no possibility of them having true thankfulness. They would cry out for mercy and for pardon from you for their sins. And they would be saved today. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us and through us. Use me as I speak to be your instrument today to accomplish your purpose and your will. I give you the thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading these opening verses of the chapter, we can see what Moses' concern was from the very beginning here. He says that he wants the people to obey every commandment that he had given them so that they would live and multiply and go in and possess the land which God had promised their fathers. To that end, he instructs this particular generation of Israelites And he says to them that they are to remember that the Lord, your God, the Lord there, Yahweh, your God, led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. In other words, what Moses wanted the people to do was to look back on the previous 40 years in which they had wandered around the Sinai Peninsula. And to keep in mind the lessons which God had been teaching them. As I think about the 40 years they spend in the wilderness, I'm approaching uh, approaching my 40th birthday. And as I think about that, birthday and realize that the 40 years the Israelites wandered in the wilderness would be the entirety of my life up to this point. Put it into perspective a little bit. And those of you who've already passed that 40 marker, you have an idea of just how long that is. These people wandered for 40 years. But was that a wasted time? Was that a wasted time? Was it it a waste? Were they wandering lost in the wilderness? And the answer to that is no. Moses wanted them to look back and he wanted them to keep in mind the lessons that God had been teaching them over the course of 40 years. He wanted them to reflect back on their lifetime. What had they experienced? What had they seen? What had they heard? What had God shown them along the way? This is a, and this is a separate issue for us today. It's not really where I want to primarily focus. Uh, but it is a good idea for us from time to time to stop and reflect back on what God has done. Maybe it's more than 40 years. But whatever the time period we look back, we need to. It's good for us to look back and reflect. What has God done in your life? What has He taught you? What has He he been doing in the course of your life? And that's what Moses wants the Israelites to do. There was a purpose, see, in their wilderness wandering. And there's a purpose in your life. And you can look back and you can see it. You can see it better now than you could see it when you were in it. In every stage of life, we get the opportunity to look back on a previous stage and go, oh, now I can see better what was happening, right? And I just was out in Michigan this week and saw my niece. 
she's a senior in high school. She was in her, in her, in her school play and got the chance to, to watch her perform, and she was tremendous, amazing, incredibly talented. It was really a lot of fun, and we really enjoyed it. But, you know, you look back on that and you think, I, I was watching all the kids on stage, and I thought, man, they, they really look young. But, you know, when you're in that time in your life, there are things that seem so monumental, so huge, and you don't really understand all of the things that are happening. But now, years later, I can look back and I can say, wow, I remember what it was like to be in high school, and I can see what God was doing in my life a little bit better now. I'm not going to say I have a full understanding of that, but I can look back and I can see that God was working in my life in some ways that I didn't see at the time. God, or Moses is telling the people, you need to look back. You need to reflect back on this time because God was doing something. You weren't lost. You know, you weren't out looking for directions. God put you there and left you there for a reason. Now we might say, well, that was because of punishment. They had, they had the, the, the previous generation coming out of Egypt had shown unbelief, right? They had failed to believe the promise of God. And then God said, because you won't go into land like I told you to, I'm going to kill you in the desert. And it's true, God said that. He said, you're going to wander in the desert until all of you die, except for two, Joshua and Caleb, right? The two men who had the courage to go into the land. And everyone else, God said, nope, you didn't believe me? You're going to suffer the consequences. So we might say, well, that's the purpose. But Moses suggests to us here, in fact, not just suggests, Moses declares that there was more than that going on. That God was doing something beyond just punishing the sins of that generation that came out of Egypt. I mean, think about it. If you were a teenager at the time that the Israelites came out of Egypt, and your parents were ones, were some of the people who were in charge and involved in making the decision about whether or not uh, you were going to go into the land of Israel to conquer the land like God had promised. And they chickened out and said, we don't believe that God is going to deliver the land to us. It's too difficult. We won't go in. I know that today, you know, we have the idea that, and Hollywood encourages this, we have lots of, you know, movies about teenagers who, you know, ignore mom and dad's advice and go out and do their own thing and just, you know, they achieve some great thing as a result. But the reality is, if you were a teenager, you wouldn't have any say in the matter. And mom and dad said, we're not going in. And then God says, I'm going to destroy this. Then what do you, that means for the, for the next 40 years, you're going to wander the wilderness through no fault of your own. Right? Think about that. That's the people Moses is talking to. Because their parents, those people who made it, they're all dead now. Or most of them have died. This is the next generation. These are the ones who were children or who were born during the wilderness wandering. And they've spent their whole life in the wilderness, wandering around. They didn't choose this. God put them there. It wasn't punishment for them because they hadn't done anything wrong to deserve it. It was God doing something else. And Moses tells us what it was. Right? What was it? The Lord was revealing what was in their hearts. He says that in verse 2. He was humbling you and testing you to know what was in your heart. Now, this is important. Um, I wish we had time to to expound on this. I don't really want to because I want to get to the main thrust here of what I want to talk about. But um, it's interesting that here he talks about knowing what was in your hearts. Well, question for you. Did God know what was in their hearts before they spent 40 years wandering the wilderness? Some of you are nodding yes. Absolutely. Why? How do we know that? 
Because God is God and he knows everything. He wouldn't be God if he didn't already know what was in their heart. Interestingly enough, um, you remember what God said to Abraham. After God had said, Abraham, I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son, the son that promised that I gave you, that I told you I was going to give you, that I promised was going to bless, and he was going to be the chosen descendant through whom all this blessing and the children like the sands of the, of the seashore and the stars of the sky. And you, you remember all that. God says, take this son and take him up to the top of a mountain and kill him. Offer him there on an altar as a sacrifice to me. And that was a strange request coming from the God who does not ask for human sacrifice. And yet Abraham took his son and he took him up to the top of Mount Moriah and he prepared to sacrifice him and he had Isaac tied up on the altar with the knife in his hand ready to plunge that knife into Isaac and kill him. And the Lord stopped him. And you remember what the Lord said to Abraham? You might not, but this is important. The Lord said, now I know. Right? Now I know that you trust in me, that you'll obey me. Okay, but did God already know before any of that happened that Abraham would do what he said? Of course God knew that. What did he mean by that? Well, I think he meant the same thing he means here. This was not so that God ultimately would know. It was so Abraham would know. So Abraham would know that his faith in the Lord was real because he could see the own, his own demonstration of his own obedience. God was revealing to Abraham what God already knew. God was revealing to the Israelites here what God already knew. He was revealing to them that, you know what? Well, in reality, you're, you're, you're not going to obey. You're stubborn. And you don't obey. But let's not jump to that yet, okay? Because he doesn't say that here. But the point is, I think what he's doing is he's revealing this, not for God's sake, God already knew. He's revealing this for their sake. That they would understand that God already knows their hearts. See? They would understand that God is already perfectly aware of what's in their heart. He was exposing that. That's what Moses says God was doing. He was, he was revealing what was in their hearts. So, if you, sit back, if you sit down and you decide to choose to reflect back on your life and ask, okay, what, what has God been doing in the wilderness wanderings of my life? Well, maybe he's been just revealing your heart. Showing you that he already knows what you're made of. He already knows who you are and exactly what you will do. Nothing surprises him. And yet, he's chosen you. So, keep that in mind. Anyways, that's free. Um, In verse 3, he goes on now to explain how exactly Yahweh had revealed what was in their hearts. Notice what he says. He humbled them by allowing them to go hungry. I love the way this is put, because we're forced to be confronted with this very uncomfortable truth. The Lord had intentionally brought them to a place where they could not produce food for themselves. There's no way that God would ever make anyone go hungry. That's just cruel, right? Right? Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, God God brought you out here and he allowed you to hunger. He took you to the middle of the desert where there were no fields for you to plant, no supplies of water to grow crops. There was no human means by which they could acquire the food necessary to live. God caused them to experience hunger on purpose. Can you imagine that? 
Some of our stomachs start rumbling if we don't get three square meals a day and snacks spaced evenly in between. Right? <laughs> and yet the Lord purposely, intentionally caused them to go hungry. He caused them to experience hunger. He caused them to experience a shortage of food. And when all of their food stores were used up, another maybe parallel to us, to, for us that maybe is more relevant since most of us don't go hungry very often, is when all of their bank accounts were empty. Right? When he had stripped away everything that they, humanly speaking, could rely on to provide for themselves. When there was no way that they had any resources left, and nowhere else for them to go to get food, then they had no choice left but to listen to his voice and receive the food that was provided at his word. This is the beauty of what God was doing. He sent them in the desert and he stripped away everything, humanly speaking, that they could use to provide for themselves and to meet their own needs. And then when they were helpless and desperate, he said, oh, by the way, just listen to my voice and I'm going to give you what you need. He fed them with manna. It's an otherwise unknown or unfamiliar and certainly undesirable food. I'm not saying it was not good. I'm just saying that because it was not what they were used to eating, it wasn't something they went, oh, great, manna, let's eat that. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't what they were used to. And if you've ever, um, if you've ever been kind of confronted with a meal of something that was just outside of your comfort zone of what you're used to eating you kind of can relate. It may not be bad. It just is different and it's a little hard to get used to. Not all that appealing, especially at first. And that's what they experienced. But that food, that manna, sustained them for an entire generation in the desert. God made them go hungry so that he could be their sole provider. And this was to teach them a very important lesson. Namely, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh, the Lord. Now, that may sound familiar to you because Jesus quoted that verse in the New Testament when he was in the wilderness. And he was tempted by Satan to turn stones into bread and feed himself. Jesus understood the lesson that God was teaching the children of Israel way back here in the desert. One writer put it this way, and here's how he explained it. God's command should be obeyed. Shortage of food or water, lack of strength, or any other excuse would be insufficient. For the command of God contained within it the provision of God. It's a lesson that we need to understand. The lesson that the children of Israel were being challenged with. God says, do this. Are you going to obey? Well, we don't have enough food. We don't have enough water. We're not strong enough. It's not good. It's this or it's that. That's not the issue. Are you going to obey what God said? And trust God then to supply the food, the water, the strength, the means necessary to accomplish it. That's it. Moses said that was the challenge. That was the lesson. They were to trust God and take Him at His word no matter what. And it wasn't just for food, but Moses said it was also clothing. 
the Lord provided miraculously. He says there in these verses we read, verse 4, I believe it is, uh, that um, their garments didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. Again, the Lord took them to the wilderness, a place where there was no provision for their needs. And then He cared for them. And He met every one of their needs. They had no choice but to trust Him because they had nowhere else to turn. They couldn't be self-reliant. This is such a difficult thing for us. We so want to be self-reliant and independent. Oh, I don't want to have to call someone else for help. I don't want to ask for help. I want to be able to do it myself. I mean, I see that in my one-and-a-half-year-old. And some of us never grow out of that, right? We want to be independent, self-reliant. And yet the Lord took them to this place where they could not be. He put them in a circumstance in which there was no possibility. They couldn't. They had no means to provide for themselves. No other benefactor, no other king who would come and look after them. Only Yahweh Himself who treated them like a father would treat His sons. It's important to notice that He specifies like a father would treat His sons, not like a mother would treat her sons. That's not because mothers are bad or the way that mothers treat sons is bad. What he's saying is, I disciplined you. I did this on purpose. I put you through hardship on purpose to train you. Another aside, but I'm never going to get through this if I keep doing this. But this is one of the reasons why we so desperately need dads today in our families and in our society. We need fathers who are willing to discipline their sons by forcing them to go through difficult and, 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 and challenging circumstances. So that they can learn to depend on others. So they can learn to reach out for help when they need help. By the way, notice what I'm saying. Not so that they can learn to stand on their own two feet and do it all themselves. Fathers need to teach their sons that it's okay to ask for help. By putting their sons in places where they have to ask for help. Putting them in circumstances where it's hard. That's what God was doing for the Israelites. He's modeling here for us a little bit of what a father ought to be to a son. Save that message for Father's Day or something. Notice verse 6. Therefore, he's he's drawing conclusions, he's moving on. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Moses draws a conclusion from this brief history in the first five verses of their wilderness wanderings. What is the conclusion? They must keep the commandments of Yahweh. This includes both external behavior and heart attitude. He he emphasizes both. Walking in His ways means obeying His laws following His rules for life. This is the external behavior, the conforming to a standard of of, of obedience. You're supposed to act this way and live a certain way. But in addition, they are to fear Him. That's a hard issue. They are to revere Him, to hold Him in high regard, such high regard that you are afraid to disobey. 
This is the heart motivation for right conduct. So these two things go together. Keeping the commandments of Yahweh means having a right heart and living in a right way before Him. So, so it, that's when he says keeping the commands, it's, it's all of it. He's not just talking about an external obedience. It's external obedience motivated by a right heart. I fear the Lord, and therefore I obey Him. That's what he's saying here. This should be your response, Moses said. After 40 years of wandering the wilderness, you should have learned this lesson. Fear God and keep His commandments. That's from Ecclesiastes, but that's the same message. But all of this, looking back at the previous generation, also has important implications, not just for the past and the present, but for the future. So he's now then transitions to looking to the future. What is coming next for these people? The wilderness of Sinai was never God's plan for Israel in the long term. It was a temporary circumstance intended to teach them to rely solely on the Lord. But hundreds of years earlier, we go all the way back to the time of Abraham, Yahweh had promised that he would bring Abraham's descendants out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. Now he's brought them out of Egypt, but they have yet to go into the land of Canaan. So the journey is not yet complete. There is somewhere else that they are supposed to be. And they're not only going to go into the land of Canaan, but God had promised that they will possess the land of Canaan. Moses affirms that that is God's intention. He says he's going to bring them into a land with plenty of water. Think about, they came from Egypt. Egypt's water source was one, the Nile River. That was it. It flooded every year. That provided land that, was cult, that, that could be cultivated from the, where the flood had gone and had watered and, and deposited sediment that made the land rich. But it was right along the river. That was the only place you could live in Egypt, really. And the only place you could really realistically have any sort of thriving economy was along the river. So that's where they came from. But God says, I'm sending you to a land, and it's even better than that, because it is filled with water sources. Right? Brooks, fountains, and springs on all the hills. So everywhere you go, you're going to have water supply. And he says, it's a land that's filled with produce. Wheat, barley, grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, honey. That makes me hungry for lunch. He says, listen, all of this is going to be available to you in in an abundance for the first time in a generation. Get this. They're going to be able to eat bread without scarcity. For 40 years, this has not been the case, but it's going to be, he says. You're going to experience what it's like to eat bread and have some left over for tomorrow. So he says, you're going to be able to eat bread. See, you remember in the wilderness, they ate that manna, but the manna was only ever good for that day. Right? You, went out and you, you got the manna in the morning, you ate it all day, and then if you tried to keep it until the next day, it spoiled. The only time that was different was on the Sabbath. They could, they could collect two days' worth on Friday, and it would last them through the end of the Sabbath day. That was a special miracle that God did every week to provide for them. But other than that, you couldn't keep it. You couldn't ever store it up. You didn't have a pantry. Because there was nowhere to store anything. You didn't need a, needed need a fridge to preserve anything because they couldn't. Nothing kept beyond a day. They never had more than one day's worth of food. Think about that. Think about living that way. You know, sometimes we talk about living paycheck to paycheck. And we go, oh, I'm just living paycheck to paycheck. I'm just getting by. No, 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 no. They were living literally day by day. I got enough food for today and that's it. If the manna doesn't show up tomorrow, I'm hungry tomorrow. I got nothing to eat. I mean, literally, for 40 years, that's the way they lived. And God says, no more. 
Now you're going to be able to store up food because you're going to be able to eat bread without scarcity. You're going to eat bread to the full, he says. You'll lack nothing. You'll even find ore in the hills, iron and copper, so that you can make tools and implements for farming and industry. This is a good land. God says, I'm going to send you here. You're moving from a place of trial to a place of triumph, from a place of absence to a place of abundance, from poverty to plenty. And here's the thing. Moses says you need to respond to this in a certain way. You need to respond with thankfulness. You see, in their fullness, when they finally experience what it's like to have everything that God wants to give them, they have to remember to bless God for His provision. But there's a danger in finding such success. Look with me there at verse 11 and down to the end of the chapter. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought you water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. Moses warns them about a serious danger. The danger is that they might forget Yahweh, forget His commandments, forget His laws. When they built beautiful homes, when they're eating from abundant fields, vineyards, orchards, well-stocked with growing herds of sheep and cattle, when they accumulate gold and silver, when they become proud then in their hearts and turn away from God, they may forget that he's the one who rescued them from bondage in Egypt. And he led them through the wilderness. He protected them from serpents and scorpions. He provided water from the rock and bread from heaven. They may forget to trust in the Lord and instead begin to imagine that they provided this for themselves. That they earned these pleasures. That they built for themselves this great life they were living. And ultimately, if they're not careful to give thanks to the Lord for all these things, they might forget the covenant which Yahweh established with their fathers all the way back at Mount Sinai. They might begin to worship other gods, like those of the Canaanites whose land they would possess. And what would happen then? Moses said it's disaster. I testify against you this day, you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. This was the risk that was at stake 
if they were ungrateful for the blessings God had given. And you might say, that seems like a little bit of a stretch. I mean, would all those things really happen to them if they forgot to say thank you to God for the land of Canaan? Well, I want you to understand that in the Bible, the word thanksgiving and thanks are closely related to the idea of confessing God, confessing His character and confessing His deeds. To give thanks means to declare who God is and what He has done and to express with your mouth gratitude for the gifts of God's grace. You see, in the Bible, the idea of giving thanks, and and especially here in the Old Testament, it's tied to worship and praise. Let me give you a few instances to demonstrate that this is so. 1 Chronicles 16, we have this command. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, sing to Him, sing psalms to Him. Thanksgiving is a part of worship and praise. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we read this. The trumpeters and singers were to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. Thanking the Lord went hand in hand with praising Him. Thankfulness is an aspect of worship. 2 Chronicles 7, when they dedicated the temple, the children of Israel bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord. In Ezra 3, they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And again, Nehemiah 12, they sought out the Levites to celebrate the dedication of the wall here with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. That's, by the way, I didn't mention any of the dozens of references in the Psalms to thanksgiving, which are often associated there with music and worship. The point I'm trying to make here is that thankfulness is an essential part of true worship. And if the children of Israel were unthankful, they would ultimately fail to worship Yahweh. And they'd be tempted to follow other gods. That's what Moses is warning them here. If they fail to be thankful they ultimately will fail to worship the Lord. It's not a mere possibility. It's a certainty. If they, according to verse 10, if they failed to, what verse 10 says, bless Yahweh, your God, for the good land. That word bless literally means to express thanks and praise to the Lord because He has given them of the abundance of His own life. Unthankfulness will ultimately lead to apostasy and death. That's why I I wanted to focus on Deuteronomy 8 today. There's lots of other verses we could read about giving thanks. But understand that that thankfulness is an essential part of worship. And if we are not thankful, then ultimately we are not going to worship the Lord. And that leads down the road to apostasy and death. death now what does that have to do with us today well i realize we're not israelites wandering in the wilderness most of us probably do not live day to day with only the clothes on our backs and only enough food for today even if we live paycheck to paycheck we're not expected to conquer a land which god will give us as inheritance once we drive out the sinful people that dwell there so 
question you might ask is what possible application could Deuteronomy 8 have for us, especially today as Christians? Well, I want to draw out real, really briefly here, in the few minutes we have left, three principal concerns that I think Moses is expressing here. Three concerns that relate to this issue of unthankfulness. These are dangers that arise from the sin of unthankfulness in our own hearts. And they're most clearly stated by Moses in verses 14 through 17. So that's where I want to focus here in the time that we have left. First of all, Moses tells us this. Unthankfulness may cause us to forget that God has saved us. Unthankfulness. They cause us to forget that God has saved us. Notice what Moses says there in verse 14. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for nearly 400 years. The generation that escaped in the Exodus, again, the generation of the parents of the people that Moses is primarily addressing here. The generation that escaped in the Exodus from Egypt, they had had been born into bondage. And they had lived their entire lives up until the point where God delivered them from Egypt. They lived their entire lives up to that point as slaves, completely under the domination of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. And you know, the, the Bible uses this picture of the Israelites being enslaved as in Egypt. It uses it over and over and over again as, a, as, a, as an image, as a metaphor for our bondage to sin. Let me read to you what Paul says in, uh, in uh, Titus chapter 3. Paul says this, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, led astray, listen, slaves, to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul is describing our natural state as human beings born in this world of sin. That we at one time were foolish, disobedient, slaves to passions. We were like the Israelites. They were literally, physically in bondage in Egypt. And we were spiritually in bondage, Paul says. And Moses is reminding the Israelites that the Lord delivered them from Egypt by His power and His grace. And in the same way, in the same way, we, we who are Christians, we who are born again by Jesus Christ, uh, have, have been delivered by the power and the grace of God. Paul explains this in the very next verse in Titus 3. He says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. We were slaves to our passions and pleasures, but He saved us, He delivered us, He rescued us from that slavery. Not by our own works of righteousness. Not by our own religious efforts. He says it's when the kindness and the love of God appeared. That God saved us according to His mercy. God took pity on us as slaves in bondage to sin. 
And God rescued us. See, again, the parallels here are very powerful. The Israelites didn't save themselves from slavery in Egypt. They couldn't. They had no ability whatsoever to deliver themselves, and neither can you or I deliver ourselves from our slavery to sin. We desperately need a Savior, a Redeemer, who is able to pay the price for our sin and who is also willing to do so, and then who will grant us life and forgiveness by His grace. The Savior is Jesus Christ, who died on the cross as our substitute. And by Himself, this is so important, by Himself, He made atonement for our sins. And so it's not up to us to pay for our sins. It's not up to us to atone for our wrongdoing. It's not up to us to bear the weight of our sin. Jesus Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree. He made atonement for our sins completely. And we receive His grace, forgiveness, pardon when we trust in Him. As the Philippian jailer who asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You and all your house. As Paul preached to that family and the entire family of the Philippian jailer believed on Jesus Christ and were delivered from their sins. If you've trusted Him and you've been born again, then you know what? You ought to give thanks always for your salvation. Just knowing how corrupt, how helpless you were as a slave to sin. How shameful and wicked your actions were. That ought to cause your heart to overflow with gratitude. With love for God in your mouth. Then should be full of praise and thanksgiving. Oh, I can't say enough how great God is. How much He loves me that He saved me. Because I I know every day the sin that I commit, the sins that were in my heart, the the sins that characterize who I am in my mind and my heart and my words and my actions. Oh, and there's, there's no reason in the world that He should save me. And yet, oh, the Lord rescued me from the wretched pit of sin. Our hearts ought to be overflowing with gratitude. And love for God as a result of that salvation. If we, if we simply take the time to meditate on it. To consider what God has done in saving us. In rescuing us. This is foundational to, very, to our very lives as Christians. And of course it's foundational to our worship. We show up on Sunday morning to worship. And we don't just do this because it's something to do. We don't do this because it's a community to be a part of. We do this. We come here and we sing and we praise and we pray and we worship and we glory in the Lord. Why? Because He saved us. Because He rescued us. At least that's why I come. Because He saved me and He rescued me and He didn't have to. And I certainly didn't deserve it and He shouldn't have, but He did anyways. By the way, this is one of the primary purposes for which we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk more about that this afternoon. Lord's Supper is about giving thanks, remembering the sacrifice of Christ, His bloody death, once for all to pay for our sins. 
We want to give thanks to Him because He gave us fellowship with God and with one another as Christians. Let me say again, if you're here this morning and you've not yet been born again as a child of God, you've not trusted in Jesus Christ to save you, then you have no relationship with God. You are still in your sins. You're still a slave. You can't thank God for something you don't possess. And so you can't thank God for salvation. What you need to do is you need to repent of your sins and you need to trust in Jesus Christ alone to forgive you and to save you. Oh, and then, then you'll have reason to give thanks. Then you'll have reason to sing and to shout with joy and excitement because God has saved you and rescued you. Oh, there's more. There's another danger here that Moses points to. He talks about their rescue, their deliverance, their salvation from slavery. But then he goes on and he speaks about this. He warns us this, that unthankfulness may cause us to forget that God has led us. Notice there, again, what he says. Verse 15, he said that God had, had, you forget that the Lord had brought you out of the land. But verse 15, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and a thirsty land where there was no water, who brought you out of the flint water, brought water out of the flinty rock for you, who fed you in the wilderness with manna. He says, listen, the Lord led you. By the way, this point assumes that the first one is true. In other words, unless God has saved you, it's impossible that God has led you. If God hasn't saved you, He hasn't led you. You can't give thanks for His leading because you don't know Him because He hasn't saved you. So if you haven't been saved, you need to trust in Jesus Christ today and be saved. But if you've been born again, if you're a Christian and you've trusted in Christ and He's saved you, Then you look back in your life and you can see His leading and His hand in your life. The Israelites too, God had led them. He he, he crossed the Red Sea with them. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. They finally were entering the promised land. He protected them from danger. Notice, He cared for their needs. In other words, what God did is He didn't just save them from bondage in Egypt and then go, all right, you're on your own. Go out and find your own way. Go live where you can figure it out. Go do whatever. No, God gave them <coughs> Himself. He didn't abandon them. There was never a moment in the wilderness where Israel was alone. You understand that? Well, they, they faced a lot of grave dangers. He describes some of them here. Scorpions and serpents and, and no water and no food. Those were serious trials and serious hardships. But they were never alone. God was always with them, always leading them. He was there with them in times of trial. He was there with them in times of shortfall. He was there facing all those dangers with them. They were never abandoned. They were never left to fend for themselves. <coughs> and the same thing, I believe we can, we can compare this and see that there is a comparison to us today. That we who are children of God are never alone. <coughs> we experience His constant presence. His constant comfort and help. <coughs> this doesn't mean that we will not experience hardships. As I said, the wilderness was filled with difficulties. It just means that we won't face the hardships alone. You see, when you've been born again and you've trusted in Christ, the Lord is with you. 
And no hardship, no trial will you ever endure that you'll be by yourself. Ever. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? When we give thanks to the Lord for his constant presence and guidance, it transforms how we look at the hard times. Well, there's still hard times. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting any sort of uh, rose-colored glasses we ought to be wearing. I'm saying to you, as we face those hard times, we will know that God is with us. Our perspective will be transformed as we begin to give thanks for the fact that God is always by our side, always with us, always accompanying and leading and guiding. We won't take a woe-is-me attitude about the, the trials of life. We'll thank God that we don't have to suffer alone. We'll thank God that He is with us in our infirmity and in our grief. Again, this is why Paul and Silas could be there in the jail in Philippi at midnight with, with torn and, and beaten, bruised backs. <coughs> they, could, they could sing praises to the Lord. Loud enough that everybody in the jail could hear them including the jailer himself. This is why Paul tells the Thessalonian church, by the way, a church that endured great persecution just weeks after they became Christians. Paul says to them, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. He is always with you. You are never alone. And therefore, you can and you should give thanks in any and every situation. Finally, Moses warns that unthankfulness may cause us to forget that God has blessed us. Forget that God has blessed us. This is the danger. If we don't give thanks, we can forget that God is the one who blesses. The very end of verse 16 and on into verse 17, Moses warned them not to think that the blessings of the land of Canaan that they were going to enjoy were gained by their own strength. Too often, we begin to think that our success or failure depends solely or even primarily on us. Our strength, our talent, our determination. You know, you, this time of year, you get the NCAA basketball tournament started this week, and a lot of people are watching that and excited about it. Even people who don't get into college basketball other times watch the games or fill out a bracket or all that kind of stuff. And um, I won't tell you how my bracket's doing, but that's okay. It's not, not really relevant. Um, but what we see and we hear, if you, if, you, if you listen to the commentary and even listen to some of the interviews, you know, you'll, you'll hear a lot of people talk about, ah, it's hard work and determination. It's just a, you know, it just kind of, we, we went out there and we got it for ourselves. There's, there's very, very much this idea that <coughs> if we just work hard enough, if we're just strong enough, if we just have enough talent, enough determination, that we'll succeed. And certainly, on one hand, it's true that effort and self-discipline tend to pay off. Please don't think I'm advocating for laziness or, um, you know, sitting, sitting around and asking somebody to do stuff for you. That's not what I'm suggesting. 
If you work hard and you spend wisely, generally speaking, you'll get ahead. I, I don't think that's wrong. It is good for us to be diligent. It is good for us to make uh, good use of our time and our money. But it's also important for us to remember that everything we have comes from God. There is nothing we have that didn't come from Him. There's nothing we can earn apart from the skills and the opportunities He's given us. There is no venture that can succeed without His favor. The Apostle Paul challenges us. He, he, he asks some very probing question, uh, questions in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, For who makes you differ from one another? I used to struggle with this a lot when I was a kid. Because I had brothers who were very athletic and were, were involved in sports. And I had a lot of friends who were athletic and involved in sports. And I wanted to be. But I wasn't nearly as, as, as talented as they were in, in athletics. And I wanted to be so badly. And I struggled with this, with understanding that God is the one who makes you who you are and gives you what he gives you. God is the one who makes you differ. Paul says, who made you to differ from one another? And what did you have that you did not receive? (coughs) Paul says, now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Whatever talent you have came from God. Why would you boast about it as if... It was somehow yours that you had because of your own ingenuity, your own ability. No, if you have a talent, it's because God gave it to you. If you have an opportunity, it's because God gave it to you. If you have these things, God gave them to you. Why boast in your talents if they came from God? Why boast in your strengths if they could be lost to injury or illness at any time? Why boast in your wealth if it could evaporate into thin air with just one economic downturn? You see, if instead of boasting in these things, we start giving God thanks, then we wouldn't compare ourselves with one another. We wouldn't feel entitled to these things. We wouldn't be disappointed if we lose them. True gratitude for all the blessings of God, both material and personal, will lead us to true contentment with whatever He chooses to give us. And I don't want to re-preach last week's message. You can go online to our website at ebcalcorn.com and you can hear it if you missed it or if you've already forgotten it. But there is a clear link between the virtue of thankfulness and the virtue of contentment. Learn to give thanks for everything you've received from the Lord. Learn to give thanks for everything you receive from the Lord and you will be a long way down the road toward being content in whatever circumstance and situation you find yourself. So are you struggling with the sin of unthankfulness today? Do you complain and whine about your circumstances? Are you critical of others? Or are you jealous of them? If so, why don't you confess your sin to God? Why don't you begin today to give Him thanks? You can start right this moment, the transformation, to become a grateful person who gives glory to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so easy for us to become self-focused. I know for myself, it's always a temptation to want to have things my way and to want to experience things the way that I think they ought to happen and, 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 and even to begin to think that somehow I deserve certain things or I, I, I've earned certain things. But Lord, help me to remember whatever I have comes from you. 
Help me remember that you are the one who is always with me to give me strength and and to guide me through the trials of life. And Lord, help me to remember that you have saved me. That what I deserve more than anything else is I deserve to be cast into the lake of fire and condemned for all eternity because I have sinned and rebelled against a holy God who created me. But Lord, you have shown mercy. Help me to be thankful always for all of the good things you've done and help each of us to to, to learn to give thanks and to occupy ourselves with giving thanks, to be so busy with giving thanks that we don't have time to complain or we can't think about something to be jealous of because we're thankful for so much and we're spending all of our time giving thanks and, and worshiping and honoring you for what you've done. Lord, I pray that you would transform us into people of thankfulness and gratitude by giving us an accurate perspective on what you've done in our lives and all that you've done for us. And Lord, I pray again that if there's one here this morning who's never trusted in Christ, that they would see that they are still a slave to sin, that they would bow their head and they would cry out to you today for mercy and pardon, would beg you to forgive them and to take you as their child or take, take them as your child and that you would save them. Lord, I pray that they would turn to you today and be forgiven and experience the life that they can have in Christ and then be able to rejoice with thanksgiving as we sing and worship and honor you because you have saved us and you've done great things in our life. We'll give you the praise for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.